You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. Oh, there's a gift card. Hey, thank you, uh, Jared and Luke, and... um, Thank you guys so much for, for loving and accepting me and my family and uh, making us feel right at home. You know, I, uh, as you'll hear about in my sermon a little bit today, I was uh, a little bit of a troublemaker in this town growing up. And so when I knew God was calling me to come back to this place, I was honestly a little nervous, and a little anxious. And um, from, from day one, you've made us feel right at home. And so it is a joy and an honor to be able to serve as one of your pastors. I know I speak on behalf of Jared and Luke when I say that I love you. We love you. Uh, it is a joy, really, to serve you, and it's really humbling. So, um, and, and if I can, Jared, I'd love to have your permission to use uh, Midget Demon as my new band name, <laughs> if that would be okay. Um, so if you want to be in that band with me after the service, you can come talk with me. Um, it is uh, really good to be here with you this morning. Uh, let's just make it from that ridiculous statement, make a transition to Philippians. If you have your Bibles, uh, let's go ahead and grab them and open up to Philippians chapter 2. Um, we are continuing our series in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Uh, where We are discovering how to find joy in all of life. And this morning we're looking together at Philippians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 12 and read through verse 30, which is um, a lengthy text. We won't have time to cover all of that, but I want to read all of that for the sake of context. So if you'll just kind of buckle up and go on this journey with, uh, with Paul. He starts in verse 12 of chapter 2, and he says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul's after our joy this morning. Verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. I have no one else like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come to see you also. Verse 25, I've thought it necessary to also send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. Epaphroditus is the one that the Philippians has sent to check on Paul. And Paul said, I'm going to send him back to you. He's been longing for you all and has been distressed because he heard, uh, because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. Paul's worried about the church. You may receive uh, him and the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Uh, Let's pray together one more time. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, I just ask that um, as this word was just read and as the seed of this word just kind of settles down into the soil of our hearts, that you would make our hearts alive with faith in the real Jesus. Show us the picture of the real Jesus as he's laid out in Philippians in a way that we cannot look away from his beauty. We cannot look away from his call upon our life. We cannot look away from the fact that we were made for him, that he alone is our salvation and joy. And I pray that you would make that truth explosively alive in my heart. Help me to repent where I'm failing to believe that and live in line with that. And I pray that you would raise dead hearts unto new life. This text is about salvation. So God, I pray that you would save this morning and satisfy. It's just a work I can't do. It's um, only a work that you can perform. So I ask that you would do it for the glory of your name and for our good and our joy. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, recently I had the privilege of speaking at the memorial service for my high school football coach, Pip Runyon. And I'm really thankful for his son, Andy Runyon, who is a good friend of mine and a member of our church for giving me that opportunity. And Andy and I had the chance to play for his dad together in high school so he can validate all my stories about my relationship with his dad, uh, which turned out to be a great relationship. Um, It just didn't get off to the best start, and that would be my fault. Uh, For those of you who knew me in high school, like Jared or my wife, uh, then you know that I was the kind of guy who kind of liked to play by my own rules. I didn't really respect authority too much, and I applied that philosophy with Coach Runyon. It did not go over very well. Uh, My philosophy with him was, you're the new coach, and I'm going to get to be on this team. I just don't have to do what you say. Uh, I'm going to play by my own rules. And so if coach says go to class, I might not go to class. And if coach says sprint, I might jog. And he punished me in various ways, all of which I deserved, um, you know, tire flips and bear crawls and all kinds of things like that. One day he tried a different tactic with me that I will never forget. Um, I had done something gloriously stupid, as typical, and he called a one-on-one meeting with me and had a face-to-face, man-to-man conversation with me that changed my life. Um, he you know, was talking to me uh, about the decisions I'm making, the kind of man I'm becoming, what it means to be a leader, and he never breaks eye contact with me, and he's got these intense, this, this stare is just terrifyingly intense. And it's just this very intense conversation. What added to the intensity is that the entire time we were having this conversation, he just so happened to be shirtless and lifting weights. <laughs> he, he called me to have a meeting with him one-on-one in the weight room, which I now realize was on purpose. And there's something very humbling uh, when you're 17 years old about a 50-year-old man who looks better than you with his shirt off, who is a whole heck of a lot stronger than you, and who is like pumping 60-pound dumbbells and sweating and staring into your soul and saying things like, tell me, Adam, you know, what satisfaction do you get out of always being the idiot? And, um, and subliminally, he was saying to me, I can crush you. You realize, like, I can literally rip your head off. And I might. So tread lightly. And, and I don't know if it was the weight of his words or the weight he was lifting or a combination of both, but I was terrified. And so um, it kind of worked for me. I'm not sure if that tactic's PC today in the school system, but I, I recommend you try it. 
Um, and because, uh, you know, it, it worked. It was a means of God's grace in my life. And so what I did was, terrified, I rebounded uh, all the way to the other end of the spectrum. And I went from playing by my own rules to performing all of Coach's rules as perfectly as I possibly could so he wouldn't kill me. Um, and so I, I did everything he, he asked me to do. If he said jump, I said how high. If he said watch the film, I memorized it. I mastered my position. I just I, I sacrificed, I labored, I worked to impress him, to prove myself to him, and to earn my spot on the team. And so I went from playing by my own rules to performing all the rules to save myself. And for much of my life, I have embodied that way of being. And the reason I share that story with you is because what Paul wants us to see in this passage this morning is that the core temptation for every single human being on this planet is to pursue salvation the same way that I lived my life in high school and pursued playing football for Pipperonia. That is to say we either play by our own rules and we try to save ourselves that way or we try to perform all the rules perfectly and we try to save ourselves that way. The two most common paths every human being takes to try to save themselves. I'm going to play by my own rules or I'm going to perform all the rules. And we would never say this out loud, but just let me flesh this out for you so you can hear what it sounds like. And this will help us get into the text. So hang with me. Here's kind of what this sounds like. If you play by your own rules, it means you live your life in such a way that functionally you believe that because I'm saved by grace, I can pretty much live however I want. Look, I get, to, I get to have Jesus and all the benefits of Jesus. I get to be on this team. I just don't have to do what you say. Jesus doesn't really expect me to obey him. He doesn't expect me to submit all of life to his lordship. He doesn't expect me to make disciples and live on mission and work at loving other people. I, I pretty much just get to go through life doing my own thing and playing by my own rules. That's kind of the Christian version of that, false Christian version of that. There's a very secular stripe of that. That kind of sounds like this. Hey man, all truth is relative and subjective. You get to define your own reality. You get to play by your own rules. And God, if he even exists, is all grace and all truth, and he's or, or all grace and all love, rather. He's cool with all your decisions. He just wants your best life now. He just wants you to be happy. So follow your heart, do whatever you want, play by your own rules as long as it makes you happy. Or we rebound all the way to the other end of the spectrum and we believe, gosh, if I could just perform better, if I could just perform all the rules perfectly, if I could just be good enough, if I could try hard enough, if I could not fail, if I can check all the right boxes, if I can clean myself up and present this this pristine image, then God will love me, then God will accept me, and I'll have the salvation and the joy that I'm longing for. We either play by our own rules or we try to perform the rules. And the early Christians called those two approaches legalism and license, or we might call them religion and irreligion. Here's what Tertullian once said. He's an early church guy. He said, just as Jesus, I'll put this on the screen, just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, so the gospel is crucified between these two errors, legalism and license. Not to belabor the point, but just to be clear, Religion or legalism says, I can save myself by doing all the rules. Irreligion and license says, I can save myself by defining my own rules. Now, the question this text demands upon me and upon us 
is which one of those two lanes are you tempted to run in? Or the bigger question is how are you pursuing salvation in your life? Everybody's pursuing salvation, by the way. To be saved biblically just means to be made alive. Who doesn't want that? To be forgiven, to be restored, to be made whole, to be known and loved by your creator. Everybody's longing for salvation. The question is, which one of those two ditches in your pursuit of it are you tempted to fall in? And what Paul wants us to see clearly is that both of those are dead ends. Not only can they never save you, they will kill you. They will rob you of joy and destroy your soul. And the good news is there is a third way, a true and better way to experience the salvation and the joy you long for, and that way is Jesus Christ. And what Paul's doing in this passage is he's telling us how we are to respond to Jesus, the real Jesus, not the idea of Jesus that we like to conjure up in our minds. And so to unpack this in the text, how we are to respond to Jesus We need to dive into it, and we need to first do just a little bit of grammar work. So look at uh, verse 12, if you will, of chapter 2. And the first thing Paul says is, therefore. Everybody see that? Therefore. A good rule of thumb when you're reading the Bible, and this is so important, I'm going to put it on the screen for you. Anytime you see a therefore, you need to stop and ask what it's there for. All right? Because when you see a therefore in the scriptures, it means that the author's getting ready to drop a bomb of application on you. He's getting ready to make this major point in light of everything else that he's just said in the immediate context. So if you see a therefore, you've got to look up and see what did the author just say. And in this case, what Paul just said in the previous context, as Jared laid out for us last week, he has just laid out one of the most majestic and powerful pictures in the whole Bible of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Uh, Look up in the context and look at chapter 2, verses 5 and 8. Paul presents Jesus as the Savior of the world. You see that? Who took on flesh and who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's this glorious picture of grace and of Jesus as the Savior who loved you and who gave his life for you. But Paul doesn't stop there because Jesus didn't stay dead. Three days later, he walked out of the tomb. And so Paul moves from verse 8 to verse 9. And in verses 9 through 11, he paints this picture of Jesus as the resurrected Lord and King of the universe, whose name, he says, is exalted above every name. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord of the universe to the glory of God the Father. You see what Paul's doing in the immediate context? He's saying, hey, listen, everybody, church at Philippi, church in Paragould, this is the real Jesus. He's not just Savior. He's Savior and He's Lord. And Paul's pushing against this thing we do in our culture where we like to have Jesus as, we we either try to fall into worshiping this, this religious Jesus or this relativist Jesus or irreligious Jesus, if you will. What that means is we treat the religious Jesus like a boss and we try to work for him and impress him. We treat the relativist Jesus or the irreligious Jesus like a buddy who's just nice and just wants our best life now and just wants his, he just supports us. Whatever you want to do, man, just go for it. You see what Paul's doing? He's saying Jesus is not your boss, Jesus is not your buddy. Jesus came to this earth and he is and he will be forever. Savior. 
and Lord. He's the King of grace who gave His life for you, who is now exalted at the right hand of the Father, who will return and finish what He started through the cross and make all things new. And and one day, Paul says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that's who the real Jesus is. Paul says you'll either do that in, in this life for your salvation, or listen to me, you'll do it in the next life to your condemnation. This is what Paul has just finished saying in the, in the immediate context. And so it shouldn't surprise us at all that the very next word out of his mouth is, therefore, all right, in light of that truth, here's how you must respond to Jesus. And here's what he says. Shocking. This is a bomb of application. If that's who Jesus really is, my beloved, please, he's saying, as you've always obeyed Jesus, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Jesus is real. Let's take it serious. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Can I just acknowledge the elephant in the room? This is considered one of the hardest passages in all of Scripture. There's a book that some scholars and pastors wrote a few years ago called Hardest Sayings in the Bible. This is one of them. And the reason is because at a surface level reading, it seems to contradict everything else the Bible, and especially Paul, teaches about salvation. So refresh your course. And for those of you in the room who didn't grow up in the church, the Bible from cover to cover teaches that salvation, this word Paul uses, salvation from start to finish is the work of God. We we are saved not by works. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, not based on your performance. Amen. Right, everybody? Everybody agree with that? All right. The Bible's clear on that. Here's one of the most famous verses. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. By grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. Salvation is the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. And this is the Paul we love, right? The champion of grace. And then we get to Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, and he starts messing with our categories a little bit, right? He, 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 he starts kind of stretching us and pushing us a little bit, and he, he makes us a little bit uncomfortable because he starts using words like obey and work in reference to your salvation, and, and then, you know, just to add a little heat, he throws in this Old Testament phrase, with fear and trembling, right? <laughs> What's Paul doing here? Has he for, has, is, he, is he just in prison and he hasn't eaten in a while and he's depressed and he's forgotten about grace? Like, what's, what's going on with Paul? Listen, before you freak out or accuse me of being a heretic or Paul of being a heretic, um, let's, let's be real clear about this. I want you to look at this text again. Look at it here with me on, on the screen. Notice that Paul says work out your salvation. He does not say work for your salvation. Okay, he says work out. He does not say work for. Paul's not saying if you're in this room right now and you're feeling the conviction of the weight of your sin and you want to be saved and forgiven by God, roll up your sleeves and get to work and start performing all the rules. That's not what Paul says. However, what he is saying is that if your faith is in Jesus, that will be demonstrated in your life by your works. See, nobody's saved by their works. 
But that's not to say there isn't effort and work involved in the Christian life. Does that make sense? There's effort and there's work involved in the Christian life. Um, We've said this from the stage many times, but it bears repeating. Dallas Willard, his famous line is, uh, Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. If you have to work for it, it's by definition, it's not grace, right? It's not a gift if you've got to work for it. But, but nowhere in the logic of grace is grace against working. In fact, throughout the scriptures, what we see is that grace motivates and empowers you to work. And you see this everywhere in the scriptures, a few verses before we get into some application. Um, we just read the famous verse in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We often forget about verse 10. Uh, verse 10 says this of Ephesians 2. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're not saved by good works, but we're saved for good works. James 2.26 um, as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. What he's saying is if your faith in Jesus isn't living and working itself out in your life, then it's dead. It's a corpse. There's no life in it. I think of what Jesus says in John, 40, uh, 4, John 4, 36, and I want you to notice the close relationship between faith and obedience. Jesus says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Or Jesus in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep, same word for obey, my commandments. If you love me, that will be demonstrated in your life through your effort to do what I say. You know, sometimes... I'll speak for myself. I treat Jesus, I fall into this ditch of treating Jesus the same way that I treat health and fitness. I I want to be healthy and I want to look fit. I'm just lazy and I don't want to work out. So I want all the benefit. Jared and I try to work out three times a week and half the time he's got to drag me. So I, I want the benefits of working out. I just don't want the effort of working out. Listen, the Bible teaches from cover to cover, we are saved by grace. But listen carefully. No one stumbles into godliness or growth or maturity or disciple-making or life on mission or loving one another. No one stumbles. That takes effort. That takes practice. Paul says you have to work out or you're never going to make it. And, And this word for working out, put your eyes on that. Fascinating word. This word Paul uses for work out, it literally means to get after it. It literally means to go at it with energy. I swear, man, Coach Runyon and Paul would have been best of friends because Paul's like a coach, a, a player coach, and he's from a distance screaming at us and exhorting us, listen, guys, go get after it. Go at it with energy. Don't stop. Keep going hard after Jesus. When you, what we're going to see when we get to chapter 3 of Philippians is he describes the Christian life like a race. And he says it's sweating and it's striving and it's straining and it's reaching and it's lunging and it's you don't stop until you get to the finish line and you claim your prize, which is Jesus. Paul says, listen, get after it. Work out your own salvation. Don't fall into this ditch of spiritual apathy. 
That's what Paul's worried about. He's not trying to scare us, and he's not trying to shame us. He's exhorting us to wake up. Listen, don't fall into this temptation to give yourself to a life of spiritual apathy, laziness, lethargy, carelessness about Jesus and the things of God. He's saying don't lose focus of the life and the mission that God has called you to. Get after it. This is what he's worried about with the Philippians. He's stuck in prison 800 miles away. He can't get to them right now. And he knows the human heart well because he's got the same thing in his heart. He knows that the heart is tempted to drift over towards, this is too hard, man. I'm just going to play by my own rules. Paul says, don't do that. I'm going to send Timothy. I'm going to send Epaphroditus to you. That's the reason why he says, I'm going to send them to you to make sure you guys keep obeying Jesus. Just because I'm not there with you, don't give up. Don't stop. Don't quit. Increasingly submit all of life to the lordship of Jesus. Get after it. What Paul's saying to us, and this is kind of a hard word. I have felt tremendously rebuked and also a lot of grace from God this week through this word in my life. What he's saying to us is you can't have the real Jesus as Savior and not have him as Lord. There's this erroneous idea in our culture that says that you can pray a prayer at some point in your life and you can ask Jesus into your heart and you can be saved in that moment and then you're free to go out and pretty much live however you want. You, you, can, you, can, you can pretty much just go through life playing by your own rules. You can pledge your allegiance to Jesus with your mouth, but then you can do whatever you want with your time, and you can do whatever you want with your body, and you can do whatever you want with your desires, and you can do whatever you want with your money, and with your eyes, and with the stuff that you let you, yourself look at on a screen. Uh, you can do whatever you want. For months, you can go without living in community. For months, you can go without ever confessing your sins. Uh, For months you can go, for years you can go without praying for or sharing Jesus with those in your life who don't know Him. Uh, You can go weeks or months without ever personally pursuing Jesus or putting forth any effort in the relationship. You know, relationships require effort. It's a mutual participation thing, right? And since Jesus is a real person, the same is true for Him. Now, He initiates and sustains the relationship by grace, but he still calls us to put forth effort to love him and do what he says. If I say to my wife, man, honey, I love you. I think you're the best thing on this planet. And then I go for weeks or months without ever talking to her or listening to her. And I blow through my life making decisions without her. And I barely acknowledge her existence. Do I really have a relationship with her? Listen, man, for most of my life, that's how I treated the real Jesus. I prayed a prayer when I was nine, and now I can like do whatever I want, however I want, whenever I want. I get to play by Adam's rules. You can't have Jesus as Savior and not have Him as Lord. You can't love Him and not strive to obey Him. You can't put your faith in Him and not work it out in your life. You can't have the benefits of His grace without the cost of discipleship. Um, J.D. Greer says this way better than I can. So he's got this fantastic little book, Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. 
And he says this. I'll put this on the screen. He says, The Bible does indeed teach eternal security. Once saved, always saved. But can we, because we made a decision at some point in the past, live with assurance that we are saved forever, regardless of how we live now? The short answer is, we cannot. Salvation does indeed happen in a moment, and once you're saved, you're always saved. Good news. The mark, however, of someone who is saved is that they maintain their confession of faith until the end of their lives. Salvation is not a prayer you pray in a one-time ceremony and then move on from. Salvation is a posture of repentance and faith that you begin in a moment and live out, work out for the rest of your life. The question we have to ask ourselves this morning, it's a question I've been asking myself all week, is am I working out my salvation by submitting all of my life to the Lordship of Jesus, or am I pretty much just playing by my own rules? I mean, ask yourself that question. Have you ever submitted your life to the Lordship of Jesus? If not, you can do that right now. The real Jesus is calling you this morning to trust in Him and to surrender your life to His Lordship. It starts with repentance. My favorite definition of repentance is from Richard Lovelace. He says, repentance is simply dethroning yourself. Repentance is you beholding Jesus at the center of the universe on the throne and saying, that's where he belongs, that's not where I belong. So I'm going to get myself off the throne and Jesus, I'm going to acknowledge that you can run my life better than me. And I'm going to give it all to you. I'm going to say that you're the king and not me. If you've never done that, Jesus is calling you to do that right now in this moment. And if you have done that, Jesus is calling you because this is a relationship to continue doing that. I love that Paul says, like, even when I'm absent, what he's kind of saying is that when no one's looking, when I'm not there to check in on you, are you submitting your life to the Lordship of Jesus? In my absence, in your own life, work out your own salvation. Get after it. Embrace Jesus as Lord. That's pretty heavy, right? By this point, um, I'll tell you where I was about midway through the week and really where my heart's at right now is, um, and Paul anticipates this from us, he knows what we're thinking and what we're feeling and he knows that the temptation of human beings is to overcorrect. And so what we're tempted to do is just run all the way to the other end of the spectrum, to the other ditch. Well, I'm going to go from license to legalism then. If you're telling me to work out my salvation, I'm going to start working for it. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go from playing by my own rules to performing all the rules. There's this, this thing in us, this temptation that we want to take the call to obedience and say, I'm going to, I'm going to prove myself to you, Jesus. I'm going to prove myself to God and others. And I'm going to roll up my sleeves and I'm going to be good enough and I'm going to do enough. And then you'll accept me and then I'll have salvation and I'll have joy. Paul says, false. And some of you in this room are feeling that right now. That's where your heart is gone, or that's what you brought into this room with you. You are exhausted from playing this religious game. Because you are here every Sunday, maybe you're even part of your missional community, and you're doing this thing, and you're doing these dutiful things, but your motivation is not from God's approval, it's for God's approval. And it's wearing you out. And you live your life in the fear of judgment and condemnation, and your view of God is pretty much that He's standing over you, arms folded, telling you to do better and try harder, and he's waiting on you to fail. That's what religion feels like. 
And it puts all the weight on your shoulders, and it's exhausting. And I've done that game for much of my life. And Paul just crushes that temptation, man. I love what he does in the next verse. Look at what he does in verse 13. He says, he just finished saying, work out your salvation, and now he grounds it for. And that little conjunction is the most important word in this whole paragraph, because this is Paul rooting everything in the gospel. He says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What Paul's doing is he's rooting everything he's calling us to do in this passage in the good news that salvation from start to finish is completely the work of God. Paul says the only reason that we're able to work out is because God is at work in. And if you think back to the way he started the letter in chapter 1, verse 6, he said, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And the work he's talking about is your salvation. And his point is, God's doing that work. That's not based on your work. That's something God is doing in you. And guess what, man? God's going to finish what he started in you. He's not going to leave you hanging. He's not going to drop you just because you disobey. He's going he's gonna, to he's gonna lead your heart. He's going to guide you. He's going he's gonna to put, if you will cooperate with him, he's going to put systems of accountability and stuff in your place. He's going to work on you. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to abandon you. He's going to finish what he started in you. And so Paul's saying, hey, trust him. It's not just about obeying him. It's first and foremost about trusting him. He's the one who promised your salvation. He's the one who performed your salvation on the cross. He's the one who preserves your salvation. He will finish what he started in you. Trust him. You can't work for him. And the good news is you don't have to. Because Jesus has done all the work for you. The king of glory humbled himself, right? This is where, what Paul just said in the immediate context. Humbled himself, became obedient. He lived a perfect life of obedience where we have failed. And then he took our death and died our death on the cross so that by turning away from our self-salvation strategies and embracing him by faith as Lord and Savior, we can be forgiven and made right with God and have a relationship with him. That is salvation. So you see what Paul's doing in this passage? He's saying that the, the key to the salvation that you long for, the way of salvation is not legalism and license. He's saying that if you chop off trusting in the grace of Jesus, all you have is legalism and you better get to work. If you chop off obeying Jesus and being faithful to Jesus, then all you have is license and you can go do whatever you want. Paul says the problem is that both of those are going to kill you. And what he's calling us in this, to do in this passage is trust and obey the real Jesus. And Paul says this leads to joy. It reminds me of the old hymn, right? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey, to embrace him as Savior and Lord. And that's where this whole passage is going, right? It leads to joy. Look at what Paul says um, as we near the end i got a couple of application points I want to say. But he says at the end of verse 13, all this results in God's good pleasure. You see that? What's fascinating to me about that is his good pleasure, his, is not in the text. It's supplied. It's, it's implied. In Greek, it just says for good pleasure. So it could either be translated for God's good pleasure or for our good pleasure. Which is it? The answer is both. 
God gets great pleasure and great joy out of doing what we could never do and saving us into relationship with himself. We like to think of God sometimes as a cosmic killjoy, but God is true pleasure. And he delights, he takes pleasure in saving you to himself. And he's doing that for your good pleasure too, for your joy. Trust and obey Jesus. There's no other way to experience the joy and the salvation you're longing for. Now, as we close, I simply want to do this. I just want to try to put this as far as I can on the bottom shelf and just ask, what in the world does this look like in reality? What does a life of trusting and obeying Jesus look like? How does, how does working out your salvation translate into everyday life? And as we close, real quick, there's three things Paul says, and this is going to be super quick. Um, hopefully you can d- discuss this in greater detail in your missional communities and around your dinner tables and stuff like that. But here's what Paul says. Here's what it looks like. First point of application he makes is he says, working out your salvation looks like loving one another. And that's, that's the point he's making in verse 14. If you put it into positive terms, Paul's saying, love each other. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. Your salvation has implicate, implications for your relationships and for the way you treat other people. And so working out your salvation, your faith in Jesus, looks like refusing the temptation to grumble and dispute against other people. Paul's saying, look, God's doing all the work to save us and bring us together to himself. Do everything you can not to destroy that. And so these, these are strong words he uses, man. Grumbling means, here's what it means, complaining about someone else with malicious intent. Here's straight from the dictionary. Um, Grumbling is whispering complaints, talking in secret about someone, making negative comments about someone behind their backs. Listen to this. Soliciting others to join your team in despising someone else. Ooh. Wow. Pushing someone else down to puff yourself up, to try to save yourself, right? That's grumbling. Disputing doesn't just mean disagreement. It's okay to have disagreements. That's fine. Um, this, th- this word means I'm going to become defensive and reactionary with other people. I'm going to assume the worst about other people. I'm not going to give you the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to attack you with my words. I'm going to demean you and belittle you to your face and to other people. That's what disputing, that's what this word means. And this, this is always the fruit of self-salvation strategies. Look, if my identity, my salvation is based on my performance, whether that's God's rules or my rules, then I'm, you know, anytime you get in the way of that, I'm going to have to crush you. And if you succeed where I fail, it's going to crush me. And so Paul says, hey man, let's not play that game. Let's do all things with, let's trust Jesus and follow Jesus and go hard after Jesus. And that looks like putting your faith into practice looks like let's love each other. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. Uh, as we heard last week, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Work out your salvation in the way you love one another for the purpose of living on mission together. Look where Paul takes this. Um, Verse 15, So that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Paul's saying the same thing Jesus said in John 13 and 17. When the world sees Fellowship Paragould 
and they see the way we love each other with this insane supernatural love and this grace that makes no sense, the way we refuse to walk out on each other, the way we fight for one another, the way that we pursue one another when we wrong one another, when the world sees that, they will know the real Jesus came to town because it's the only way to make sense of it. And Paul says this is... This will cause the light of the gospel to shine in the darkness and the brokenness of our city. This is the reason, by the way, why missional communities exist. So that we can shine like lights where there's darkness in the city of Paragold and beyond. Missional communities are simply groups of 15 to 20 people, or 50 if you're in some missional communities, (laughs) who are seeking to live and love like Jesus throughout our city. So that every man, woman, and child in Paragold and beyond can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus. So the light of Jesus can shine throughout the brokenness of Paragold. So we can see more salvations, more marriages restored, more people healed and set free from their addictions and their wounds. This is, this is what working out your salvation is all about. Trusting Jesus, loving one another, living on mission. If you're not in a missional community, by the way, I would love for you to email me. Adam at fellowshipparagold.com. I will personally get you in touch with a missional community leader. This is, this, is, this is where we're seeking to make this happen. Live and love like Jesus around people who are far from God. Um, and then Paul closes like this. Um, if you're anything like me, you're asking, how is this possible? And Paul says, well, it's by never letting go of the gospel. Working out your salvation looks like Uh, loving one another, living on mission, and never letting go of the gospel. Look what he says. Work out your salvation, verse 16, by holding fast to the word of life. When Paul talks about the word of life, he's talking about the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for us to make us right with himself, to bring us the joy of salvation. And Paul says, cling to that truth. Cling to Jesus. Cling to all that God is for you. In Christ. Again, man, this is not about your work. This is about Jesus' work. And I love that Paul says um, this is the word of life. The gospel of Jesus is what brings you to life. So if you're in this room and you're trying to follow Jesus and you feel like you're drowning, like I often do, and you're, you're fighting with like the temptation to bail or to try to roll up your sleeves and try harder, you need the gospel. Soak in the gospel. First thing in the morning, throughout your day, preach the gospel to yourself a million times a day. Put yourself in community where people are speaking the gospel to you. And guess what? You will come to life. And some of you need to come to life for the first time today. You need to turn away from trying to do this on your own. And you need to embrace Jesus for who he is, a Savior and Lord. 